0: Following more than 20 years in prison, Derek Hamilton is now free, and he's using his experience from that time to teach future criminal defense lawyers how they can do their jobs better. I'm Stephanie Francis-Ward, and on today's episode of the ABA Journal's Asked and Answered, he'll be telling me about his work as Deputy Director with Cardozo School of Lies, Perlmutter Center for Legal Justice. Derek, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me. Good morning, everybody.
0: Well, first off, just to give our listeners some context, can you tell them a bit about your background?
1: You know, as he said, my name is Derek Hamilton. I spent 21 years in prison for a murder I did not commit. While in prison, I studied law for a very, very long time. Kind of got um uh, very familiar with the criminal procedure law, Constitution of the United States, and other, uh, you know, prerequisites that was needed to be able to litigate. And then I began litigating post-conviction motions, appeals, and and in all sorts of of legal writs for myself and others. In 2011, I was paroled. From that moment on, I began a crusade to prove my innocence. Um, I was able to establish that the police officer who framed me, also to date, 22 exonerations have happened uh, based in this misconduct. I was found exonerated in 2015 by the Kings County District Attorney's Office. And in 2014, for the first time in New York history, the Appellate Division, second department, in my case, found that a freestanding natural innocence claim is causable on New York's post-conviction 440.10 statute. And I've been working uh, uh, throughout the years and helping to exonerate other people, uh, four people in the last two years, and just continuing to work with the Perlmutter Center of Legal Justice, man, to, to get justice for people who ordinarily wouldn't have it, to teach forensic science, and to get clemencies for guys who have aged out in the system and no longer threat to public safety.
0: When you were inside, how did you go about teaching yourself to research the law? I read in some of your background that you, you met a man named Jerry who had been doing time for a long time, but he was tired of researching the law. He was discouraged. Um, how did, could you tell me a bit about how you learned and maybe about him a bit?
1: Well, I learned from, they had a, a legal research course that they was given to Rikers Island to begin with. So I began there by going to the library and taking a legal research course. Um, Then when I went upstate, I got a job in a law library and I used to work the counter. The counter is when everybody comes in and they request for books. So, you know, you learn from your research. Everybody's coming in and asking for different books that deal with different topics. And, you know, I would look at them and I would read them. And I would just stay on the counter because, again, you're going to get the most uh, knowledge there because you got to get the general indexes. Um, if somebody asks you for something you don't know, you got to look it up and find it. Your job is to make sure that the people that comes in the library uh, and research and get everything they need. So I learned a, a lot at that counter uh, doing research for other people. And then I had older guys like Jerry the Jew and, and and the Colonel or Joe Diaz who were very very smart, and I would always pick their brain for knowledge. I would always go to them and ask them. Uh, to guide me in ways. And, and one of the things I learned from uh, these two guys is that procedure was very important. So I began reading the CPL from the beginning to the end. I read every single book, McKinney's, that they had there, and just to understand what those statutes were. And and, and they would always tell me that the prosecutors usually beat you on procedure and post-conviction motion. So I read the procedure, 440.10, back and forward to I mastered it. And then I would just practice on the 1,500 people that was in prison. I had a lot of clients, so I would always learn from litigating. And then I would learn from prosecutors um, by reading their briefs and, and 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 stuff like that. But the, the advice from the oldest guys, like Jerry DeJu and Joe Diaz, was that once you match the procedure, you can have the merits of your claim heard. And that's what I studied a lot.
0: Really interesting. And once you learned it, how did you go about teaching other inmates that didn't have that experience that you did?
1: Well, New York State, uh, the, the advantage of having I've been in New York State prisons that they teach legal research courses and I began being assistant to the guy that was actually teaching it. And I began going in and, and sharing knowledge with them that way. So I was able to, you know, just learn a lot and meet a lot of people and just do a lot of things.
0: I'm curious, too, from your time, both with serving your sentence as well as helping people who are serving sentences when you got out. What's the one common thing that many wish their lawyers would do, but the lawyers usually don't do it?
1: Believe them. I mean, the the most fundamental thing that I've found is there's a distrust between lawyers and their clients because lawyers tend to don't believe the things that their clients say. And maybe for good reason. And another thing I think that that the most important things that lawyers should get to do is know the client, get to learn the client. Uh, some guys have mental health problems uh, and they need mental health treatment. And they go through the system over and over again because of their mental health deficiencies and never get the treatment that they need. And the same thing goes to people that was abused. You know, as kids, lawyers need to know who their client are, take time to find out what is the trauma that caused them to. Uh, uh, become antisocial beings or whatever they may be. Just get to know them. Get to know them as a human being and don't look at them as just a docket on a court. Uh, look at them as a human being. Um, and I think that's the most fundamental thing is building a relationship uh, with your client so that there's a trust and that the client can tell you the truth, that he can feel uh, comfortable and open up to you uh, because you're dealing uh, with a human being and not just somebody who is committed a crime and locked up and and, and should be uh, feeling indifferent about the circumstances.
0: Let's take a quick break. And when we come back, I want to ask you about building trust with your clients. We'll be right back.
1: Be the best resource you can for your Spanish speaking clients with the Spanish Group's legal translation service. Experienced translators ensure accurate translation of your documents with same day delivery. Confidentiality is ensured and the Spanish Group guarantees acceptance for certified translations. All that and their rates are competitive. If you need other languages, the Spanish Group translates in over 140 languages. Mention Legal Talk 20 when you request your quote for 20% off your first
0: translation. Visit thespanishgroup.org. Delegate out those tasks that take up your time. And we're back. I'm Stephanie Francis-Ward. And on today's episode of the ABA Journal's Asked and Answered, my guest is Derek Hamilton. He's a deputy director of Cardoso's Perlmutter Center for Legal Justice. Derek, I want to go back to what you said before the break about believing your clients and taking the time to get to know them. One thing I hear from lawyers a lot is they, there's so much to do on their cases, and you probably feel that way too now that you're helping people. How do you find time to get to know your clients and to take the time for them to trust you when you've just got all these things coming at you and it's a difficult situation? But what can you do?
1: Well, one of the things, the most important things is to make sure that there's a flow of letters and telephone calls uh, in terms of some form of communication. So, I mean, if you speak to a client twice a month, uh, you know, three times a month and you hear him out, uh, and then the things that they tell you, you kind of like, if you can't do them, you appoint them to somebody to see him through. You know, the main thing is that if a guy tells you, hey, you know, if you get my phone records, you can prove that I was home and not at the crime scene and nobody ever gets his phone records, it's frustrating. That's a
0: problem, It yeah. is a
1: big problem. And you, and you shouldn't be deferring to prosecutors and judges. I mean, a lot of times in court, Lawyers defer to prosecutors and judges over their own client because they tend to believe them more and and don't believe their own client. And that in itself is a telltale sign. It's shown. It's like right there in the in the makings when it happens. I mean, you have to really have faith that the person who's accused has the most to lose. So they should come forth and tell the truth. If they're lying to their lawyer, uh, lawyers easily going to find out But you need to investigate. You need to really, really investigate.
0: Oftentimes people who are serving prison sentences, they've had a significant amount of trauma from the get-go. And it can certainly be hard to build trust with people who've had trauma, even if you as a lawyer are doing the job to your best ability. Do you have advice on that? Are there some way to get your client services that maybe a lot of lawyers don't know about or don't take the time to get? And how can you convince your client to accept services if you can get them?
1: Well, one of the things we do, uh, when I say we do, I mean we speak to the judge and let them know that this is the situation that we believe needs time. Again, everything is time. It's not about rushing somebody through the criminal justice system because, but you have to let the judge know this is not an ordinary case. That this guy may have some serious mental health problems and don't want to acknowledge them. Right? We need some time to recognize what those are, to have them speak to social workers, to have uh, people come in and, and, and adjudicate this individual. And we explain the reasons why we believe so, whether it's the history, whether it's family members information, uh, we get mitigation specialists probably involved, but, but communication to the court so they can understand that there is a breakdown in some form of mental health with our client and that, you know, we need time. We need to really find out what this is. You know, we need to get our heads behind it because if we don't know, then we can't advocate appropriately. And anytime there seems to be a rush, we have to let the court know that the court risks And making us ineffective and have to protest and maybe even get off the case because we don't want to see You know, we don't want to be in that position where we hurt our client at any cost. So communicating with the judge, communicating with the prosecutor and then bringing in some outside social worker uh, to some degree, whether it's Osborne Association, New York uh, or somebody else. We use Osborne a lot in their services. You definitely have to let the court know what you're working with and ask for some assistance to some degree.
0: Are there times a client doesn't want to accept the help? And if so, how can you try to convince them it's in their best interest?
1: Well, there are times when clients don't want the help. I mean, and, and again, I think that's where I come in at because having experienced the criminal justice system and, you know, having the ability to sit down and talk to people comes in handy. But I think you should hire somebody that can relate to the client. Like, again, this is where trust comes in at, right? A lot of times, you know, clients is going to not trust you because of cultural differences or whatever that may be. And I'm not saying lawyers have all these resources. The biggest problem is lawyers don't have the resources they need to be able to achieve these goals, right? So if the court is not uh, going if, to, even if a, if a client pays and he started out with money and he runs out, the question then becomes whether or not the judge is going to, you know, put up that money from the state to assist. So, I mean, it's difficult when a client don't want to help himself. In, in that case, you know, if I'm an attorney, I may even want to get off the case and say, Judge, look, I can't be a part of this destruction. This guy may need to go into some mental health facility until he's better to make a decision for himself. Right now, he can't make that decision. But you have to put it on the record. You have to let it be known. You have to make sure that the court is aware of it and, and, and get some guidance. Don't be the person to make the decision in that situation.
0: How does, in terms of client trust, how does showing respect figure in, in terms of the lawyer showing respect for a client? I can see where sometimes, you know, that issue of respect, either it's not there or it might get really misread in certain situations.
1: You know, it, it, it usually happens. I mean, it usually happens. There's usually be a, mis, a misread from, you know, clients and, and, and you know, to any client mistrust. I mean, that's something that has to be built. Right, there is no presumption that just because I'm your lawyer, I represent you. you're gonna trust me because there's probably some past uh displeasures or whatever it may be, so for me, again, it goes back to explaining who I am and what I do and asking a client to be forthright and completely honest because I'm gonna turn over every stone and everything and try to find out what happened here. but again, trust goes both ways and and you know I let them know that look i'm gonna be your advocate. I'm going to be the person who stands by you 1 million percent. But all I'm asking from you is to be the same. It's your life. You know, I want you to understand more than mine is yours. All I can do is assist you in getting the best results possible. But I'm going to need you to be 100 percent involved. Right. A lot of times lawyers come in and they want to control every aspect of everything because they may be smarter than the client. Um, but they don't know enough. They don't know the neighborhood. They don't know the facts. They don't know the circumstances. So you have to sell that we are a team, right? That, that we are a team. There's no me versus you or you versus me. We are the team. And we're up against a prosecution office that has, uh, you know, maybe 1,500, 2,000 employees. And, 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 you know, they have way more resources than we have. So, you know, we got to be smarter than them. So, I mean, it's all about, again, in relationship, the communication the ability to to build uh, that, that bond with that defendant.
0: And I want to go back to what you said about the control piece. Is that a problem maybe with new lawyers or lawyers that aren't very experienced or maybe with lawyers who are experienced is sometimes lawyers want to control everything, but sometimes that doesn't work. Oftentimes that doesn't work.
1: You know, it's hard to acquiesce to somebody that you think may not have uh, the intelligence or the experience in knowing what's best for themselves. But um, when you talk about factual matters, when we talk about neighborhoods and, and evidence and, 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 and information, or even people that I can reach out to, who's going to know better than that defendant? You know, who's going to know better than that defendant if he's from the community in which the crime happened? Um, nobody's going to know better than him as to what the resources is. So I'm not going to have an opinion about those type of things because uh, having an opinion about those is based on, you know what, a feeling. So, you know, it goes back to uh, being able to trust when your client says, look, you know, get a video or, you know, I wasn't there where they say I was or this witness is lying against me. And you'd be like, why would the witness lie? Um, You know, or why would the cop, the common thing that was said to me was why would this cop pick you out of all the people in Brooklyn? Again, today, 22 people has been exonerated by the misconduct of this cop, right? So when you ask questions like that, uh, you tend to make your client believe that you think he's guilty, that you side him with the police officer, and you really were just asking a question that you didn't even understand. So we got to be careful in the dialogue and how we communicate with people who are incarcerated. And again, we got to remember that they're human beings, that they're people who have families, who have children and loved ones, you know, and, and, and all of that. They're just not animals.
0: When you're working with law students who haven't spent much, if any, time with people who don't share their background, what do you tell them or do to help them about getting past their bias?
1: One of the things uh, that Josh Dubin is great at, uh, the director and in the forensic classes, is he point out the biases and how, in all of these sciences, bias causes the problem, that like when there's biases or when there's subjective analysis, errors always happen. And we talk about that, whether it's in jury selection or whether it's in our own personal belief. But what I teach them more than anything else is that their job as lawyers is to change the criminal justice system, right? That we have an obligation to not just become lawyers, but to improve the system. And that when we think something is wrong, most of the time, there is something wrong and we just shouldn't stand there and just watch it. We should be involved in making sure that it's changed. And that's the fundamental difference, I think, is i is let them know that leaving as young lawyers, they have an obligation to improve the system. You know, And if you're not improving it, then you're just sitting there listening in it. And we shouldn't want to do that.
0: Let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to discuss how lawyers can deliver not-so-great news to their clients Assuming that the news is correct, they can deliver it in a way that clients will accept and understand. We'll be right back. Filing court documents, serving legal papers, collecting electronic signatures, all critical parts of the litigation process, yet ones that are time-consuming and error-prone. But what if you could do more straight from your case or document management software— And we're back. I'm Stephanie Francis Ward. And on today's episode of ABA Journals Asked and Answered, my guest is Derek Hamilton. He's a deputy director of Cardoso School of Law's Perlmutter Center for Legal Justice. Derek, I think a job that talented lawyers can do well is delivering bad news to a client in a way that they will accept it. Oftentimes, the client's reaction to say, no, you're wrong. I don't believe you. You're lying to me. You're you're in cahoots with the other side. There's lots of reasons that people come up with not to accept the truth sometimes. What is your advice on delivering not-so-great news to clients in a way that helps that they understand it? and they accept it and move on to what they need to do next?
1: You know, I think the best way of delivering not-so-great news to a client, again, comes from, first, having built that trust, and, second, being able to sit down and really reason with a person and say, look, I care about you. Like, the only reason why I'm here telling you this because I care about you. And the difference between, um, you know, maybe you accepting this 10 years opposed to going to trial and wind up with 40 or 50 or natural life, depending on the circumstance of the case, um, I care about that 30-year difference, right? I care about, um, you know, and I couldn't sleep at night knowing that, you know, I did this. I didn't make sure that you understood the dangers of going down the road and what you were going. And we have have done that with client after client, make them see reason when they didn't see it, let them understand that the greater good of all is to see freedom another day, and that the evidence that's against them is, is just terrible. Uh, you have to let them see the evidence. You have to walk them down and say, okay, if you was me, how would you defend against this evidence? Help me help you. And if you can't help you, because this is the evidence, these are the facts, these are the video, this is the fingerprint, this is the forensics. And I think that when you give it to them on that level, you know, where a third grader can understand that nobody can help you around this type of evidence but you. But you're gonna have to you know, accept whatever it is, your responsibility in this. And then we're going to have to come back maybe years later after you're in there taking programs and getting yourself together, asking the court to modify your system because you became a better person. But, I mean, you put yourself in this situation and you got to make the best decision for you. Um, Again, it comes with trust. It comes with letting them see the evidence. Don't hide it. Show it to them. In black and white or whichever way it's in, video and say, look, look at this. Look at the fingerprints analysis. How do we get around that? Um, and then you explain to them. It's like suicide, walking in there, fighting against something you can't defend against. So it's about being candid. And, and you start that out from the beginning. Um, you just be truthful and honest and forthright. And, and and you just don't be judgmental, but you let them know that you're there to serve them in the best way that you possibly can. And at the end of the day, if you go to trial and you lose or something, the pill is lost, you know, you're going to be there for them. And, and you're going to be there in a way that lawyers should be because you care about them as a human being.
0: Something that lawyers, I think of all experience levels, often struggle with who do litigation is knowing whether your client is telling the truth. Do you have any advice on that?
1: And knowing whether or not your client is telling the truth, I can only say that for me. Um, I believe that every client to some degree lies. And I take that in consideration when I'm having that conversation. And I, and again, it comes again, I keep saying this, about building trust, about letting them know from the beginning, I expect you to lie to me because I'm a stranger. Right. You don't know me from nowhere. Right. Well, you're not lying to me. You're lying to yourself because I am, you know, I'm tasked with defending you. Right. So if I'm tasked with defending you and you're telling me a lie, who are you lying to? you lying to yourself because if this come out to be false, it's going to hurt you, right? So you have to explain to them that your job is to assist them and in get into whatever the goal is in this particular case. And if you lead me the wrong way, you lead you the wrong way. So, uh, again, it's not about me being the boss. It's about me representing you, and it's your life. So at the end of the day, you're going to be the boss of your life. You know, you're going to be the boss of your life. I'm just going to try to assist you. And if you're BSing me and you're lying to me and you're just sending me down a wild goose chase, you're gonna pay for that at the end, not me.
0: How do people serving sentence? Are there common ways they know their lawyers lying to them that maybe lawyers may not be aware of?
1: I believe sometimes lawyers are caught you know, and, and, and misrepresenting. I don't want to use the word lying to the client, but I would say misrepresenting to the client because again, they defer to prosecutors. They believe stuff prosecutors tell them, whether it's, uh, you know, subconsciously or not. Right, they come back and they say to the client, "Well, you know, I found this out. Or the prosecutor told me that." Um, and you said in accusatory tone, and and it, it breaks down the trust because you believe the prosecutor. You didn't investigate what the prosecutor told you. You just took what the prosecutor told you and said it to the client on face value, and now the client knows that not to be true, and he's just so you know, upset. oh has selling me on a rubber, because again, you 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 do seem to be siding with a prosecutor and you may do it prematurely, right? You may do it before you had an opportunity to investigate the evidence. You repeated it to your client instead of saying, Hey man, we got some evidence from the prosecutor. They alleged this. I'm going to send an investigator out to get to the bottom of it. Um, You give it an accusatory tone sometimes. uh, And when you're dealing with a a person who is distrusting from the beginning, sometimes they're going to hear it in a different uh, uh, way than you intended it to be said. So you gotta be very careful about that.
0: My last question, I want to go back to something you said. You said, if I let you do this, I couldn't sleep at night. I think that not sleeping at night is a real common piece of anxiety for many lawyers who do criminal defense work, as well as people like you who uh, work with people who are trying to uh, change their sentences. How do you turn it off to take care of yourself? So that you can be, you can do the best work you can for your client the next day.
1: You know, I think one of the things that lawyers must do, and it's very, very difficult to do it, is again, remember that if you've done your best, if you've done your best, if you've done everything you humanly possibly can do to defend your client, I mean, your, your obligation at that point is satisfied and you should be able to go home and get a good night rest, knowing that you left it all on that table when you was in court and had the opportunity to. And your client wouldn't lose a draw, would know the same. So, you know, I'm going to sleep good at night. I'm going to get rest and be ready for the fight the next day because I'm going to know that, you know, while I was in that court, I was at my best. And, and, the, and the only way you can be at your best is, again, like you said, to rest and to do your best every single time you walk in the courtroom. And if you think you can't, to get that adjournment. See, I'm not, I'm not up for the fight today. Um, you know, I need to, I mean, whatever it is, it's harder than you've done than said. Some judges, calendars don't permit it. But I mean, if a lawyer is not 100 percent on his game or at least, you know, at the degree where he can really, really be his best, then I think that shouldn't be a court day. You know, and I think that you should be able to communicate that too with your clients. Like, look, this is not one of the greatest days. I might need your hand because the judge ordered me to be whatever. I mean, it's about taking care of you. Doing your best. Walk in that courtroom or, uh, and just do your best. And, and just remember, if you were sitting in that chair where that defendant was, what would you want done for you? Always remember that. That if that was me sitting there, um, what type of representation would I want? What would I want somebody to do for me? I think that benchmark was, says it all.
0: Derek, thanks you so much for your time today.
1: You are welcome. Perlmutter Center of Legal Justice, we coming for the innocent. And we coming from those who no longer should be incarcerated. Thank you for having me. Of course.
0: And listeners, thank you for joining us. If you like what you heard today, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. We'll see you next time for another episode of the ABA Journals Asked and Answered.